This week on the show, we covered the container D gaining support for launching Linux containers on FreeBSD, OpenBSD 7.1 on the Pine 64 Rock Pro 64, a true minimalistic window manager does not exist, or does it? OpenBSD folklore and what airports have to do with that, the HardBSD May 2022 status reports, Dragonfly BSD release 6.2.2, and more. This week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 460, OpenBSD Airport Folklore. Recorded on the 16th of June, 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find the online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show or want to give us a little tip this way, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. Hello, we are your hosts, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome. Uh, as I said already, we have uh, interesting headlines as always, and it's always amazing what we come up with every week. This one is none the worse because it's ContainerD gains support for launching Linux containers on FreeBSD. Yeah, uh, so this got merged about a week ago as of the recording time here, but basically allows uh, you to run Linux containers on top of FreeBSD using ContainerD. Um, and it basically works in the same concept as Linux jails, basically setting up uh, the kind of chroot-ish type thing uh, where every time it tries to open a Linux file, it looks with a certain path prefix uh, and... Basically, if the container is like Alpine Linux or Ubuntu or whatever, it's the same as if you had installed Ubuntu or Alpine Linux in a directory on FreeBSD and, and used uh, the Linux jail concept. But it means that you can just start running those containerd uh, applications on top of FreeBSD now. Oh, that's very exciting. And so this is available already? It's merged and stuff? So it's merged. Uh, because it's only a week ago, I doubt it's actually made it into like a released version just mm -hmm. yet. Uh, but if you build uh, containerd from source, or uh, I'm guessing there'll be a port and maybe there'll be a develop version that will include it, uh, then that will get you uh, to the point where you're actually able to do stuff. Oh, exciting. I know this has been uh, in the works for a while. I think the original pull request was opened in May of 2021, uh, but they've managed to deal with all of the feedback and get it all sorted out and... Uh, merged yeah that's sometimes necessary to have that long breath and uh, patience to get these things done and see them through um so we're right well some of it was literally uh now that we're going to support a bunch of different operating systems we need to um actually have you know the uh instead of append mounts or whatever he's like we're going to need a version of this for each os mm -hmm. and it's like all right, instead of kind of having an if letter or whatever, it's like we need a separate file that's like, this is what we do for FreeBSD, this is what we do for Linux, and this is what we do for Windows, instead of trying to do it all in line and, and having to add else if FreeBSD or whatever in a whole lot of places, uh, which is kind of, you know, unfun. And, you know, just dealing with FreeBSD-specific things, like you need LinProcFS and LinSysFS, uh, and, you know, that... They didn't have bits for that in the uh, other existing yeah, code. to make the pieces come together. Okay, we'll watch this space and let you know if there's more developments or uh, people have used this before, maybe on a blog, and we'll be happy to cover that in a future episode. Yeah, but uh, I just thought that was interesting news. Oh, yes. A lot of people will look forward to having that uh, uh, as, as an option. Let's 
let's say I want Linux mm -hmm. jail instead of my boring old Docker container. Um, here we go. Next one is OpenBSD 7.1 on a Pine 64 Rock Pro 64. And that is a uh, write up here on bsandro.tech. And uh, yeah, it says the Rock Pro 64 is a beefy single board computer uh, made by a company that brought us the Pinebook Pro and the Pencil Pine. or Pinecell <laughs> uh, and Pine Time, the smartwatch, and so on. Uh, basically, the board utilizes the same uh, eight core Pine uh, CPU as the Pinebook Pro, basically a Rock Chip RK3399 and four gigabytes of DDR4 low profile RAM. One of the distinct features uh, is that computer this computer has a PCI Express X4 socket. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't able to use any of the video cards uh, because uh, there were never any stock. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it looks like this the particular PCIe implementation doesn't work with memory mapping required for GPUs to work properly. Uh, but a bunch of people have been using it for network cards or SATA controllers uh, to make a little NAS. The, apparently now even an official case uh, for the our, uh, Rock Pro 64 that has uh, three and a half inch hard drive slots. Nice. I can see some use cases for that. Yeah, I know at one point we looked at uh, using this to make a little streaming device. Uh, but the problem was trying to use cameras that weren't, that didn't capture at the right resolution and so on, meant that you're trying to do too much video transcoding for a tiny CPU, mm. even if it was, you know, x86 or something it still would have been too small um that is really something where you'd need a, a video card to do it or something uh so we didn't end up pursuing that but uh i have a couple of older uh rock 64s not the pros uh, so i think mine aren't uh eight core either but uh interesting like yeah once it has a real pcie slot that you could put a, a controller in then you suddenly are looking at a nas that's less you know, hokey than trying to do anything that involves USB. <laughs> USB is not for hard yeah, drives. Yeah, not too much. Not, not the most if you could put a real controller in it, suddenly it's a lot more interesting. Yeah. And so here they have OpenBSD running on that or are bringing it up at least. As they say, with storage choice, uh, they obtained the board and ran OpenBSD on a microSD card. Uh, while uh, has its perks with a disposable read-only storage. Yeah, we probably can think about what happens then. Uh, but apart from the microSD, they say that the board supports an eMMC chip up to 128 gigs. In their opinion, that's a far better option for using with any SBC long-term. And there's no difference yeah, in the installation. A, right. Um, they're saying, you know, if, if you're not going to actually hook up a real SSD or hard drive to it with a controller yeah. or something, then yeah, the eMMC will have much better longevity than the SD card. And they have a bit of uh, a section about the boot sequence theory. That's interesting because it seems like it's just uh, in, a, in a history book or something and it's not very uh, practical, but it is uh, feasible here. Unlike the x86-64 ARM ecosystem does not have a unified boot routine, hardware and especially memory initialization process is vastly different between CPUs unlike old BIOS or modern UEFI. Uh, the U-boot is the Oh, you boot? Yeah, you boot? Yeah, it's, uh, because I'm having the U-boat uh, German uh, association yes. there. Um, <laughs> it, it's, I think that was on <laughs> Probably, yeah. Um, not the most nicest one, but yeah, here it is. Um, it's the most successful attempt to fix that. And nowadays, even UEFI is a viable option for some ARM64 devices, like the Raspberry Pi 4 or the 400. Yeah, it was interesting how big of a difference it makes uh, on some of the actual like ARM server hardware that I've got to play with. 
uh, that it has a real UEFI BIOS and basically the boot process works exactly the same as x86 except for that it's ARM. Uh, so it's, you know, you put a file in, you know, the little uh, FAT32 partition and it just happens to be an ARM one and seven x86 one. But the process of dealing with the boot code is basically exactly the same as x86. And mm. it's really nice to just, you know, using exactly the same bootloader that FreeBSD always uses. Uh, but most of the little SBCs don't work that way. Yeah, it gets complicated deeper down. But once the U-boot is fully chain loaded, it fires off proper OpenBSD bootloaders or the bootloader. And the process described only goes uh, for the EMMC and microSD boot, not, not the SPI flash. Uh, they avoid using that because the U-boot flavor there would be hardwired and uh, only for a certain operating system. So if you flash the U-boot made for Linux, you won't be able to boot other operating systems. So that's the catch. Uh, getting the OpenBSD uh, boot media in the first place is fairly straightforward. You go to the OpenBSD uh, CDN, get there the package you, you want. This is uh, 7.1 and you can probably pick other ones as well. Um, and then you do the DD of that image onto your SD card or SDMMC. And next thing is to dump boot, both parts of the bootloader. That's another DD command. It's a bit more involved. Yeah, so basically in addition to the install media, you also go and get these two packages uh, from OpenBSD 7.1's package repo. That's uboot, ARCH64, and DTB, uh, the device tree builder or whatever. Uh, and then you're basically DDing these two files that come out of that, that uboot package at specific offsets within the the installer image. So you're overriding part of the installer with the, the Rock Pro 64 specific uboot mm. code. Okay, yeah. Careful with that. It could overwrite other important bits of your host system, but if you keep it like the instructions here, you should be fine. Yeah, just make sure that your, your uh, OF or output file on your DD command is actually the uh, the EMMC or SD card or whatever that you're writing to and not uh, some other device <laughs> on your system. So don't just blindly copy and paste that device name from the tutorial here. Make sure it's pointing at the right device for your computer. Yeah. And then you mount that SD5i in this case, FAT32 to MNT or somewhere else. Then you create a directory on that, MNT DTB slash rockchip, and then copy that rock pro uh, image or loader to that and then unmount that. That's a FAT32 partition. It doesn't look like much, but that's how the bootloader gets onto the uh, device. Yeah, so you put in the device tree information into the image as well, just in a different partition on the image uh, so that U-Boot can find all the hardware when it boots up. Yep, and then it's time to hook it up to the serial console because the default media OpenBSD kernel cannot use the GPU on the Rock Pro 64. So it's necessary to be able to interact with the installer like push buttons or enter uh, root passwords and stuff. That's where serial console comes into play. And we need three wires connected from USB UART to the board. Uh, the ground port goes to board pin six, uh, the RXD, that's the receive bit, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. to board pin eight. and Which is the board's transmit, transmit pin. One, and the transmit pin, board pin On eight, the USB goes to side. the receive side. So over cross basically. And Within your serial adapter is trivial using many tools, screen, minicom, picocom, CU. Uh, they'll be using CU here since it's default and pre-installed on OpenBSD. So they do CU, lowercase l, CUAU, 
uppercase U0 dash S and then 115200. That's just the baud rate, I guess. And then you can check the DMESH in your operating system after plugging in the adapter to get the name of the device. <laughs> yep. Then when you're going to do the install, uh, notable detail here is the installer will suggest wiping the entire storage device and writing out new partition tables, but we don't actually want to do that. We just a few minutes ago painstakingly went through and wrote the the Rock Pro uh, specific stuff to specific offsets on those disks, and we don't want to lose that. So uh, it explains how to. Uh, go through the, the OpenBSD installer and, and make sure it writes the stuff to the right place and isn't going to disrupt all the boot code that you just painstakingly set up. Mm -hmm. uh, and then once you're got that up and running, uh, they have an example of what the D message will look like when it boots. Yep. Devices detected and uh, stuff it could uh, make work somehow. And yeah, that gets you OpenBSD on this little embedded board. Uh, here's a little bit of uh, things you should know and maybe get prepared for it. A live webinar, uh, open source virtualization, getting started with Beehive. And Alan is kind of involved in that. Yep. Uh, so Jim Salter and I will be hosting a webinar on July 12th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Uh, so that's, what, uh, 5 o'clock UTC? 1700 UTC? Um, and it'll be available on demand after that as well. But uh, if you want to come and learn basically you know beehive can be a little complicated but we've got it simpled down to just get from i've never looked at beehive before to i'm running windows and linux and freebsd and beehive uh and something that'll take less than 30 minutes uh, so if you're interested in that then uh the urls in the show in the show notes here click to sign up and uh you'll get an invite to the webinar mm -hmm. Cool. I like that you're doing these things because it's very hands-on and you kind of get from the audience also the feedback, like what's easy to understand and yes. what's difficult. Uh, yes, it's, they're, they're much more interesting to do when uh, more people show up to attend them. And, you know, like uh, the first couple we did, we had like 100 people and oh. it was great. Some of the later ones, we've had fewer people, but that's mostly, I think, pandemic has given everybody like Zoom fatigue. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants yet another thing. But uh, these are fun, so you definitely should sign up. Mm -hmm. All right, and here's the article that is the namesake for this episode. No, you skipped one. Oh, did I? Sorry. Oh, yes. Um, he here is the true minimalistic window manager, but it doesn't exist, according to this article. <laughs> so introduction. Uh, window managers, many people use them to increase the efficiency of their workflow or to show how cool they are to their colleagues and friends. Window managers are among uh, even bachelor and master thesis topics these days. As the title states, in my view, uh, a truly minimalistic window manager that only follows Unix philosophy doesn't actually exist yet. Uh, let me show you why and how uh, discussing current window managers and how their designs of the true minimalistic uh, window manager should have been done. So looking at DWM and BSPWM, I only want to discuss two existing window managers, DWM and BSPWM, which I believe are the only ones worth discussing. So DWM is a window manager maintained by the Suckless community, which claims to be minimal, uh, but miserably tries to accomplish tasks that are beyond what a minimal window manager should be trying to do, which is such as drawing a status bar or mapping keys, which directly violates the rules of composition or the rule of modularity in the original Unix philosophy. Window managers, like any other program, should only provide output to other programs for other aspects of a complete desktop environment. 
i.e. a status bar, while performing the task that the window manager program is only meant to perform, which is managing the windows. This design choice brings many ugly complexities like DWM blocks or SL status programs that don't draw a status bar, but only set the status text in the status bar that's already in the DWM somehow felt responsible for drawing. Uh, you need to hand patch DWM blocks and the DWM source code to make that ugly pile of code compatible with your already applied patches. And at the same time, you should try not to bang your head on the wall for hours only to have a fully functional status bar. Uh, this complexity should not have been, or this complexity could have been prevented if the whole bar uh, would be a different X11 program that would just communicate with the window manager through a Unix socket. Uh, you know, the suck less programs always try to compromise or comprise fewer lines of code, even in disfavor of clarity, which violates the rule of clarity, and expect you to hand back source code by creating patches or applying existing patches created by the community uh, at the different versions of DWM, while the source code barely includes any comments for people that actually want to work on it. I like the idea that everyone should get what they actually need, although the way the community tries to handle it makes it more time consuming. Uh, than other window managers. There are many ways to create modular software that allows people to get what they actually need uh, while building the software. Although they've picked the most complex, chaotic, and time-consuming one for a community that aims to create something that they say will be minimalistic. Hmm. Uh, so with a project like DWM FlexiPatch that houses almost all the patches created by the community and uses preprocessor directives for applying patches without a headache and even this doesn't make me forgive other sins of this window manager uh, and the community around it, so uh, just for the name of simplicity. On the other hand, uh, BSPWM's design is modular and doesn't involve anything like key mapping, handling pointer input, drawing a status bar, etc. I predict that BSPWM's architecture should be pretty similar to our imaginary uh, TTMWM <laughs> architecture that can be seen in a diagram where the X11 server sends events to the X11 socket, which goes to an IO multiplexer, which uh, goes into the, the imaginary window manager socket, um, but also is able to send events to the window manager uh, and have things go back and forth that way. Mm. And he says that the BSP window manager still falls short. It's not as expandable as DWM. It is too specific. It's binary layout, for example. That's why despite my dislike for it, I've uh, continued to use DWM. However, this whole writing made me work on my own window manager instead. Okay. Yeah, interesting. And here we are now, proper one. Um, the OpenBSD Folklore and Share MISC Airport. That's uh, Frederick Campus on his blog. And that goes back in 2016. I sent a diff to OpenBSD's tech mailing list, which added missing airports and area codes for Poland. Theo kindly pointed out privately that there was a rule actually governing the update of this file, which was known among OpenBSD developers, but never made it into a commit. So they ended up, or Frederick ended up making one, adding his home airport, RZE, to the list and specifying update rules. Only add once you have been to. Later on, they would uh, also add the code for the Warsaw Modlin Airport, WMI, from which I did a couple of round trips that same year. And at the OpenBSD D2K17 hackathon, the rules were documented in a newly introduced airport manual page. Yes, there's airport 7, uh, which states that new airports can only be added by OpenBSD developers who have visited an airport and thereby have verified its existence. 
Once again, the more astute reader will not have missed the fact that the rules do not stipulate any flying requirements, so we can just go there, have a drink, and leave again. Neither did Henning, who not long after Airport 7 was committed, added an entry for XFW, the Airbus factory, which he had visited but not flown from. Well, that would be nice with those experimental ones. Um, <laughs> today, I finally took some time off and did a day trip to Lublin. No trip to a city is complete without a visit to its airport, right? Uh, there's a bit of picture from the and airport. <laughs> picture to prove he was there <laughs> yes here's me and here's the airport uh, one can say anything about lublin airport but they sure do consider iata codes are serious business the tone was set right from the parking lot entrance so it's l-u-z here and with this yep. yeah i'm happy to announce that there's a new entry for l-u-z in the airport file you are welcome i remember hearing about this airport file before uh, but I, <laughs> yeah, I thought, yeah, I didn't realize that I, you know, it's, it's funny how the kind of lore around a file like that happens and everybody, you know, everybody knows that you only add airports you've actually been to, but then, you know, what happens, it turns out nobody ever actually wrote that down. <laughs> yeah. And what happens if the airport closes down or is replaced by some other, is the file updated still, or do you still have to go there another time to verify that too? I think if it changed, you'd have to go there uh, not very often. I think airports actually get removed, but... Yeah, so you can kindly gather from this that the OpenBSD folks really like to travel as a consequence. Yes, they've been, uh, they, they often have their hackathons in, in more exotic mm -hmm. places. <laughs> and yeah, what, what constitutes an airport? Is it just an airfield and does it actually take... Uh, Personnel. I'm guessing it, it has to have an IATA yeah, code. Okay. So, which you don't have to be very big to get one of those. Just true. Yeah. Could they, be just freight and stuff. Uh, <laughs> just making sure the rules are clear. I guess some of the smaller ones would only have the four letter ones that are not IATA, they're ICAO or whatever yeah. it's called. So, are we pulling uh, this to other people? Luckily, in Canada, all, all of the Airports in Canada have the three-letter code, and their four-letter code is just the three-letter code with the letter Y stuck on the mm. front of it, I think. Yeah, YYZ and YO. Well, no, th those, that's the three-letter code. So the four-letter code, is it? It's Sorry, we put a C on the front. Oh, so it's... So the the so YYZ is the IAATA code, but the ICAO code for YYZ is CYYZ. Mm, okay. So yeah, in Canada, all of the... ICO codes are the IATA code with the letter C stuck on the front. And I think this mostly the same is true in the US, except for they have a K on the front. Because uh, it was a less used letter of the alphabet than U, I guess, or whatever, for them to... Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, they have a couple more airports. Fill up the airport <laughs> space. Yeah, it's a big list. Okay, we'll watch this list and... Um... Yeah, if it grows over time. I mean, you could reconstruct the movements of certain OpenBSD folks. Not sure if this is uh, too much of right. a crypto thing or a... <laughs> <laughs> privacy thing. Like, I, I remember making, uh, using, was it uh, gcmaps.com or something like that. It's a great circle mm -hmm. route mapper. I've used it before to just see, you know, how many air miles is it from here to there and so on. Uh, but you can put in a string and actually have it draw all your flights. And I did uh, a drawing of like the flights I had done over a course of three years. And it like it had to spin the globe in a weird way to try to fit them all. Because I had been, you know, to Japan and Taiwan, but also like California and, and all over Europe and so on. It's like I've been everywhere, but like Australia mm -hmm. at this point. Um, 
in South America. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, interesting to see all the places I've been and all the airports I've been. Yeah, to. Well, and hopefully we will be able to extend this list as more people start flying yes. again. Yep. Uh, okay, that is our wishful thinking. But now we should actually cover the Heart and BSD May 2022 status report. Because that has some interesting bits from HeartBSD uh, we don't hear too much about. Uh, but here is what Sean Webb wrote. In May 2022, HeartBSD saw a few changes in the source uh, department. The first is change root is now prohibited when a directory file descriptor is opened. Okay. Second is the HeartBSD. So yeah. is that, I'm wondering if that means if somebody had the directory open, you can't see root in that directory? Or is it? It's just the file descriptor. Yeah, probably. Opened. Yeah. So basically, if the, if the directory is opened by somebody else, then you can't see root into it. I just I am wondering what the uh, the the security uh, bits there. Yeah, I, just, I wonder what the story behind that one is because it sounds mm. interesting. Okay, uh, maybe someone will tell us. Uh, at feedback at bsdnow.tv, that's your address. Uh, the second part is the hardened BSD no debug kernel configuration was updated to remove a few more debugging related options. Okay. Yeah, so the no debug kernel basically includes the generic kernel and then turns options off. So if new options get added, then you have to update the no debug kernel to yeah, turn off. Otherwise, those you options. have a no debug kernel with debug symbols. <laughs> kernel that includes a new debug feature. And yeah, the whole point of the no debug kernel is it's faster because it doesn't mm -hmm. have the debug stuff. Yep. And in the third uh, source change there is that Loic merged a lot of updates to 13 stable, especially regarding the uh, hardened BSD update utility okay then the ports list uh, has ltos now disabled for the firefox port that's link time optimization i'm not uh, mm -hmm. uh very yes. clear about yeah this is it then the second is the virtual box ports were fixed by loic thanks for that uh, the third is net open and x port is fixed not sure what that does never used that before um the fourth is that loic fixed devil mingv mingw32 gcc that's the uh ability to compile windows programs from oh yeah yeah, yeah. Windows. the uh, environment for all that is needed and the fifth is that all like was very busy this time uh fixed the devil bmake port and in other news other projects recent changes in freebsd caused breakages with sec adm uh, sean fixed sec adm by complying to those abi slash api breaking changes made by freebsd okay that's short and uh concise and yeah now we know what happened uh, in May and Harden VSD land. But we have other distros we can also find information about, like Dragonfly BSD 6.2.2 is out. Yeah, so you should be able to download that now. Looking at the change log, uh, there were some changes to libc uh, to be able to use, deal with uh, going protocol to network uh, byte order uh, for exact size buffers and some improvements there. Uh, there was also improvements to desynth, which I think that's their port building framework, right? Uh, yeah, that's what they use. Yeah. Uh, so added uh, configuration variables for meta versions, uh, made the default version two. Uh, they fixed uh, read dir race in their tempfs, uh, increased the buffer size for open dir and read dir buffers. Uh, I've been looking at something similar like that on FreeBSD. I wonder if that makes sense. I'll have to look at that. Uh, they fixed Ktrace's handling of system call return values, uh, did some stuff for systemfy semaphores so they don't panic, uh, more improvements to the name cache uh, that could slow systems down over time. Uh, they fixed 
mixed network and host IP specifications in IP tables in IPFW. A bunch of changes for Hammer 2, uh, fixing a panic related to USB sticks uh, being pulled out on uh, mounted Hammer 2 file systems. Uh, fixed the check fail uh, path that might uh, mangle an inode that's in memory. Uh, report critical bulk-free transitions properly. Uh, fixed bugs with uh, multiple pseudo-file systems are mounted when you're trying to do a bulk-free and uh, fix issues where deleting files sometimes uh, cause the files to linger until the file system was unmounted. Uh, then in the kernel, they have a so temporary workaround for vnode rec uh, recyclement and uh, other improvements to the vnode handling and also fixed a lock order reversal in the cache resolve mount point. And lastly, they sync their uh, time zone information with the latest version uh, from IANA and fix the crash uh, that could happen when in uh, the last command when the time t value was out of range. Mm. Okay. Uh, by making uh, libc standard time set error node to e overflow when the value is out of range. Okay. Good to have. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and that's the news from the Dragonfly camp. Unfortunately, we don't get many news from there. So if you follow this a little bit closer, then let us know. We'll be happy to cover them a little bit more. It's time for the feedback and questions part of this episode. Luckily, we still receive feedback and questions, even though last week, Alan, uh, not Alan and I, Tom and I were a bit uh, short on them. So we resorted to story time, but now we have a bit more. If you want to send us some feedback or have a question that we try to answer for you, it's feedback at bsdnow.tv where you send your emails to and that gets uh, into a future episode. The first one this week is Norbert with a short question, nevertheless important, uh, goes like this. Hello, I'd like to promote BSD and I think you are doing a good job. Thank you. But overall, is there a possibility to give you some money for what you are doing? Uh, it is a kind of appreciation for you. Cheers, Norbert. Yeah, uh, generally the easiest way is to do um, the Patreon. Yeah, uh, that's, that's why we set this up because we have a couple of people who had similar requests or questions like this and so um that's your main way and we appreciate that because it also helps uh jt our producer with all the uh, work he's doing post-production and mixing all these things up to kind of uh, make his work a little bit more appreciated so that's uh that so uh and yeah if you like to propose be uh, propose bsd promote bsd that's always uh good you can find promotion material uh on the FreeBSD foundation website or just uh tell people about your experiences how you liked it maybe write a blog post or i don't know give a talk at a conference that's always uh a lot of people talking about bsd giving it a lot more uh audience okay and uh, then we have paulo with a networking question and paulo writes here hey guys happy national barbecue day did I miss something there? <laughs> okay, so let's have a barbecue. Thanks for the amazing show, you guys. Put week after week, always great to listen to. Great, I like people who listen to them week after week. Um, I do have a couple questions, hoping you could help me out. Here we go. On the FreeBSD 13.1 release, notes, NFS changes section, I see the following. Quote, a syscitl called vfs.mfsd.srv max IO has been added that can be used to increase the NFS server's maximum IO size from 120k bytes to any power of two up to one megabyte, unquote. Would it be interesting from a performance perspective to have this match a particular ZFS dataset record size when larger than the default 128 kilobytes exposed via NFS? 
Or is this not the problem this CTL new maximum value came to solve? One megabyte is the maximum record size of ZFS, and that's this new CTL maximum two now. Right. Uh, so also in newer versions of FreeBSD, um, so the maximum physical IO size was changed, I think in 13.0, from 128K to one megabyte. I'm guessing this is a little bit more about that. Um, even if your ZFS record size is only 128K, having NFS do one megabyte chunks might be more efficient. Um, so turning this value up to one megabyte might make your NFS a lot faster, especially if you do mostly copying large files rather than, you know, a lot of small edits to like, you know, if you're using VMware over NFS in small pieces, turning this up might actually make it slightly worse. But um, if your main thing you do over NFS is copy large files, then doing this in the bigger chunks, you know, one megabyte chunks, it means eight times less overhead or seven times anyway. Uh, you know, each one megabyte will take one IO of overhead instead of eight. Mm. Uh, so I don't know that there's anything magic about setting it to the same value as ZFS, uh, but being able to turn it up does make a diff big difference. I know the max fizz going up to one megabyte made ZFS with a one megabyte record size work better. Uh, just a small technicality, the actual maximum record size in ZFS is 16 megabytes, uh, but there's a CCTL that uh, stops it from going above one megabyte by default uh, because there can be, uh, it can be difficult for the system to get a lot of 16 megabyte chunks of memory for you to write into, uh, especially on Linux, uh, but even on FreeBSD, uh, depending how long the machine's been up, the memory can get fragmented. Um, so I've not done a lot with larger than one megabyte blocks, um, but ZFS can have records up to 16 megabytes. And I do know, I do know people using that successfully. Mm. Okay. Well, this could be a nice performance um, evaluation here with the- Yeah, um, I, I imagine there sizes. are some advantages to, to turning the maximum IO size up, and I'm guessing that's why it was that. Yeah. Uh, and I think the only reason the default didn't change is uh, I don't know how some other NFS clients would react to that. Um, oh, yes. The clients can ask for a larger size, and this allows you to, to support it. But I don't know that you'd want to change the default until it's been tested a bit more. Yeah, it's like pushing up the MTU on your network card, like all the network equipment yeah, has if to If everybody isn't doing it, then it, it can get a little yeah. hairy. Uh, but uh, the other question is, uh, on Wi-Fi support, is there any particular 802.11ac chip set fully supported on the latest FreeBSD? I think with 13.1, the Intel one is getting better and better. I know it's actively being worked on. I don't know the exact There's statement. a wiki page about the status or the progress, uh, and I definitely see that it got better. Not on my own, um, but I see reports from other people. It's not finished. It's not perfect like whatever it is uh but it's better than previous uh stuff we had and people are working hard to make that work because it comes up very often uh wi-fi support on freebsd but i guess the intel one is very uh good because it's first popular so if we cover that a lot of well, I, already. i think there's yeah there, there's two major things uh in the favor of the intel one the first being that the Linux driver is dual licensed so that it can be used on BSD as well. Uh, and uh, it is very popular. Like it's what Lenovo tends to put in the laptops. And so it's the, what a lot of BSD developers have in their laptops and have an interest in having that be good. Yeah, because you remember the, the developers are typically the ones scratching their itches. And if that's a very big itch, then it's higher. It has a higher likelihood that it will be 
finished sooner rather than some obscure Wi-Fi chip that only a few laptops have. Yeah, um, and while it's not a great solution, um, the other thing I know some people have been having good success with is there's a package on FreeBSD called Wi-Fi Box, and it makes like a 250 megabyte Alpine Linux VM in Beehive, which you pass through your not well-supported wireless card to, and then you get a tap out of the Beehive that is Wi-Fi. Mm. So basically, uh, they actually set it up, I think it was using the 9P file system or something, so that your host WAP supplicant file is actually used by the VM and it, you know, connects to the Wi-Fi and you just end up with this beehive being your Wi-Fi device. <laughs> okay, that's tricky, but uh, it works. But I've seen people that, you know, uh, had like an Aethros or a, a Broadcom card that wasn't supported and it meant that they got high-speed uh, Wi-Fi on their FreeBSD machine. Yep. So people are uh, paid by the foundation to make uh, better support for 802.11 AC chipsets, uh, but it still takes time for testing and making sure the performance is still uh, increasing or uh, up to what people expect. But thanks for these questions. That's definitely uh, interesting uh, and getting uh, the feel of what people need or what to want to have is always good for developers. And I think that pretty much wraps up this episode for this week. Thank you for listening. As always, check out our Patreon page. We will announce new episodes coming out on our Twitter page. And also your favorite podcatcher will probably also list it once it's out. Thank you. See you next week. <laughs>